Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Santel, and in this episode, we're continuing to use the study by uh, F. Gathering, Anno Domini, to help us go through the early history of the Christian church. And so in this episode, we're going to focus on Paul's third missionary journey. And in this third missionary journey, he is based mostly in Ephesus in along the coast of modern-day Turkey. And as we're reading through the study and through this part of the book of Acts, we discover that Paul is really using Ephesus, um, by which we get the book of Ephesians later, he's using Ephesus as kind of a base of operations, and he is going to many different places and towns in you know within that region and in that area, um, but a lot of his time is spent in Ephesus and encouraging and building up the church there. And we see some of the same things that have happened in previous parts of Paul's mission, where um, local Jews are threatened by his message of the gospel, and they um, oppose that and stir up some trouble and some um, turmoil, even riots in the cities. And then the Gentile Roman officials step in. Um, sometimes they step in and they jail and beat uh, Paul. Other times they step in and say, everyone calm down and sort this out. This isn't a legal matter. This is your internal religious strife. Um, but there's always some element of conflict over worship and religion because Paul is coming into this polytheistic society and community where you have lots of gods and lots of temples and idols, and there are a lot of different ritual practices. And as we see here in, in this part of his missionary journey, um, there's also some economics tied into it all. Um, and so Paul comes in to this context preaching monotheism, one God, worship only Yahweh alone. In fact, Yahweh is the only God, um, and Jesus is the Messiah, um, so stop believing that Caesar is king. Stop believing in Artemis or Athena. Um, and instead, believe only in Jesus and worship only Jesus. This is hugely disruptive to the polytheistic religions of the time, as well as the established political, social order and hierarchy, and even the um, economy of the, of the places that he's going and preaching this. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we ver very much value freedom of religion um, in Western civilization and especially in America. And we have freedom of religion enshrined in our Constitution as part of our First Amendment rights. Um, but and so, you know, looking at this, it kind of cuts both ways, doesn't it? I mean, on the one hand, uh, Paul is certainly free to practice his religion and free to advocate to others how he should how we should or should not practice religion so are everyone else um and then where things go off the rails is when you know paul is trying to persuade people through reason and logic and appealing to the spirit um and showing you know, demonstrating the fruits of the spirit in his life and his ministry and then others are then turning toward violence to say this particular religious expression is not okay and we're going to squelch that and get it out of here um so it's a really interesting kind of dynamic and situation to look on from our vantage point in you know the 21st century in america um <clears throat> because we have this freedom of religion that would protect you know someone like paul coming in and saying you all are wrong, <laughs> you know, just to put a really fine point on it, a really blunt point on it. That's essentially what he's doing, right? He's coming in and telling all these people, you're worshiping false gods. You're doing it wrong. You need to do it this way instead. And, you know, imagine how we would feel if someone came in and did that um, to us as we're worshiping God in our ways as Methodists or Baptists or Catholics or what have you, or, you know, Muslims or Hindus. You know, we um, really value freedom of religion and pluralism. You know, this idea that everyone can choose for themselves out of their own convictions how they view God, understand God, and, and how they worship God. 
and also, um, you know, how they practice or uh, continue their inherited traditions, you know, their uh, traditions in which they grew up and which their parents and grandparents, etc., worshipped. So we have these values and this protects someone like Paul, um, but it also would protect the people Paul's trying to persuade. Right. And so it's really interesting how, you know, we see Paul and his mission basically participating in what might be described as a marketplace of religious ideas and then running into what we would describe or categorize as um, political and religious violence, um, oppression, squelching out this alternative religious uh, practice and expression. Okay, so let's get into some of the, the details. I wanted to start off with kind of a, a broad picture and review of where we've been and kind of how some of those same themes are present. Um, but let's get into some of the details. So uh, for about two years, Paul is living in Ephesus and he is, again, using this as kind of a base of operations to go to nearby places and preach the gospel and really strengthen these churches and these believers. Um, so in the study Anno Domini, they write, as Paul traveled to many places throughout his missionary journeys, he spent time teaching people about Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he accomplished through his death and resurrection, and his offer of salvation to all. Besides the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, this was all new. People all over were talking about Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Are the things he said true? Is he the Savior? On Paul's journeys, he was able to affirm Jesus' life and his teachings, solidifying the gospel for those who heard them and for us to this day. So it's interesting, you know, they say besides the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, this was all new. And, you know, we, I've talked about in previous podcast episodes, um, I believe it was the one uh, about the uh, early church and the uh, formation of the church and the Council of Jerusalem, and then also, you know, Paul's first missionary journey. But they were reinterpreting the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but what for them was the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures. They're reinterpreting it creatively to say, we understand this as referring to Jesus now that we've had our experience of Jesus. Um, and so this is all new indeed. And you can even, you can see why Jews in the synagogues, some of them maybe might be convinced, some of them maybe weren't convinced because, you know, they don't have the New Testament. All they have are the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So that's, that's their sacred scripture. That's their tradition. And they have a whole, you know, culture and religious religion built around that. And now Paul is coming in and saying, oh yeah, all this stuff that you thought you understood as, you know, referring to one thing, actually that's prophesying Jesus. And we know that based on our experience of Jesus. Um, and so, you know, and there's this creative reinterpretation of those verses and those scriptures. Um, you can see how some people might not be convinced by that. It might feel like, well, this is heretical. So um, it's interesting, you know, However you look at it, Paul is presenting a perspective and a viewpoint that is very different from what has come before. Okay, so if we look in the book of Acts and, you know, chapters you know, 19, 20, and 21, those are, you know, the chapters concerning this part of Paul's mission in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. So if we look in chapter 19 of Acts, um, Paul is uh, arriving in Ephesus and he finds some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. You know, so that Paul's right there. That's interesting that, you know, as Paul's traveling around talking about Jesus, I mean, this really is all brand new in a lot of ways. Um, and so we didn't, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So we see here in this story that 
there are some people who have this intellectual mental conversion um they believe in jesus they believe in um this new way of following god but they don't really know about jesus and they definitely don't know about the holy spirit what they do know is john and his baptism and paul says john's baptism was a baptism of repentance and repentance is one of those uh christian words or church words that has a lot of different meaning and connotations and associations for us. Um, I don't have a footnote in my study Bible for this, but I believe that the Greek word translated as repentance is metanoia. Metanoia refers to changing your mind, right? And so when um, God is, when Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he's saying, turn around, change your mind, um, the kingdom of heaven is here, and you know N.T. Wright and other commentators and interpreters have argued, I think persuasively, that Jesus is talking about himself. I'm the kingdom of heaven. It's right here. You know, it's not just in the temple where you have to go to it, and it's exclusive, and it's uh, you have to be you know ritually pure to even be able to go in. And if you're a woman, you can't go in very far. And if you're a Gentile, you can't go in even as far as the Jewish women. You know, it's this remote, exclusive, removed place. Um, Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of heaven isn't there anymore. It's in me, and I'm here among you, and I'm walking with you. So um, John's baptism, if it's a baptism of repentance, of changing your mind, it's this intellectual thing for these believers. And so then when Paul baptized them in the name of Jesus, then the Spirit comes upon them, because then it's a a emotional spiritual transformation and not just like this intellectual mental agreement you know it's interesting um, over the last few years there have been a lot of critics of American evangelicalism you know and evangelicalism is a denomination within Christianity but that American evangelicals you know like the Southern Baptist Convention um, they, there are so many of them, you know, they're the largest Protestant denomination in America and they, the members of evangelicalism tend to be very well platformed. You know, they're the mega church pastors. They're the best selling authors. They're the highly sought after speakers. Um, you know, they're, they're podcast hosts with millions of subscribers and, um, you know, every blog post they publish goes viral they tend to be very well platformed. They tend to be very influential. Um, and so at times it can seem like American evangelicalism is American Christianity. You know, they speak for all of us in a sense. And I, and that's obviously of course not true, but, um, if you were outside of Christianity, you know, if you're a secular atheist and you're just kind of observing what's going on, what's being said, I think you could be forgiven for thinking that these evangelical influencers are speaking for all of American Christianity because they they have just such large platforms and the biggest mi megaphones and um, and so there have been many critics of American evangelicalism over the last several years, many of which are Christians themselves. You know, they're either evangelicals or ex-evangelicals or they're mainline Protestants or they're Catholics. Um, and so these critics have pointed out that there seems to be this weird disconnect within some expressions of evangelicalism where they put so much emphasis on believing the right things, believing the right doctrines. And, and it seems like what they view salvation as is just mentally agreeing to this set of doctrines and if we look in the scriptures and we look at the example of Jesus and his life, and we look at Paul's work, that's not what we see. We don't see a huge emphasis on mental agreement with a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, we see a practice of faith. We see a, a listening to the Holy Spirit and 
receiving the Holy Spirit and we see, you know, acting out our faith and expressing our faith through our actions and behavior and words. So it's kind of an interesting point of comparison, you know, where, uh, and I know my, my, I myself as a, you know, more kind of intellectually driven person, I can really get fixated on beliefs and I try to also balance that with, well, how do I express my beliefs through my actions and behavior and my attitudes? Um, and I think that's exactly what we see here. This group of believers in Ephesus, um, they didn't have the spirit because they intellectually, mentally agreed with some doctrines, but they didn't emotionally, spiritually um absorb those and allow those to then express through their hearts. So when, um, and that's the baptism of Jesus, you know, the baptism of John is, yeah, I agree that there's a Messiah coming. Um, the baptism of Jesus is an internal transformation. So after this, Paul enters the synagogue, you know, again, he said earlier, a couple chapters earlier, I'm done with the Jews. And yet, every time he goes to a new place, he still goes to the synagogue and still starts preaching. Um, and I wonder how much of that is, you know, I have hope that this time is going to be different. And how much of that is, this is a good place for me to start preaching. Um, I know I've got some people who will believe what I'm saying, be persuaded, they'll convert. Um, and even if not, you know, I know this is a good place from which to, you know, to have a platform to speak my message. So he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for about three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them, doesn't specify who, I, I, the Jews in the synagogue became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. You know, so the early Christian church referred to itself and was referred to by others as the way, not Christianity. That came later. Uh, so Paul left them, you know, so he goes hoping this is going to be different. It's not. Um, and he leaves. He took the disciples with him. So those who were believing his message and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, this went on for about two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, meaning this area of Turkey where Ephesus is, heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so as I you know, mentioned before, um, Paul is not just coming in, stirring up a bunch of trouble by um, arguing with people. He's also healing people. Um, and we see that in Acts chapter 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And so then we have at, right after that this strange story where some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Um, and then one day an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and beat them up so that they were, as the scripture says, uh, nude and bleeding. So when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they're seized with fear. And uh, in this context, I think it, just, it doesn't just mean they're afraid, but they're afraid and awestruck, reverent. And uh, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And then this actually caused quite a revival. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Um, and so you see here this huge um, repentance, if you will, this revival in the community as a direct result of the miraculous things Paul was doing and that were happening in this area among the believers. So like I've said before in this series, it's not just that Paul's going in and arguing and, and being kind of a jerk. It's that Paul is arguing and basing his arguments and the very fact that he's even trying on the fruits of the spirit, um, the evidence of the spirit working in him and through him. So both his subjective experience where, you know, he's saying the spirit told me this, I had this dream, I had this vision, and also 
the outward experience where I'm healing people in the name of Jesus. Other people are healing people in the name of Jesus. Clearly, there's something at work here. Clearly, the Spirit is at work, and we're um, doing what we should be doing according to the Spirit and according to God's will. Okay, so there's this interesting scene. After, you know, all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. And then we get kind of this aside, this, you know, story that doesn't quite fit in with Paul per se. You know, he is present and plays some role here. But the story that unfolds um, does isn't really centered around Paul. It's centered around this silversmith. So this silversmith named uh, Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, calls together a bunch of other workmen and craftsmen in the city of Ephesus. And he says to them, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, from making silver and gold and wooden idols to Artemis and to other Greek or Roman gods. And you see and hear, so this is Demetrius speaking again, uh, you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So, in other words, hey everybody, um, we're losing our market for our idols, because Paul is preaching to people and convincing them that these idols don't really embody or represent God like we think they do. So, I mean, this is totally foreign to us, but I mean, imagine, uh, well, actually, let me maybe use an analogy. Um, you know, so Catholics have the crucifix, you know, where it's not just the cross, but it's the cross with Jesus depicted on it. Um, we Protestants have the cross. These are sacred symbols to us, right? They mean something to us because of what they represent. So, you know, I want to give ancient people a little more credit and not and not think or say that they thought this wooden statue or gold or silver statue was literally their god, but rather that it was a representation of their god, uh, whether that was Zeus or Artemis or Jupiter or what have you. So they... You know, they're not dumb. They're not stupid. They don't think that this statue of Artemis is actually Artemis, but it's this representation of her, and that's meaningful to them because of what it represents. And it becomes kind of like a, a, a altar, if you will. I mean, the altar in our churches is sacred to us. The altar means more to us than the rest of the sanctuary, the rest of the multi-purpose room that we're using as a sanctuary. And, you know, so we don't, tell people, you know, just go to the back wall and, you know, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, we ask people to come to the altar. We do an altar call, you know. So even we have these symbols and these spaces that are set apart and separate and because we have chosen to uh, ascribe or view them as holy, and so we set them apart. And it, it kind of seems like it kind of becomes a cycle, a self-reinforcing cycle where, you know, we set it apart because we want it to be holy. We view it as holy and, and special and unique. And then that being set apart makes it even more special, more unique. The main point, though, is that you have these people in Ephesus and elsewhere in modern-day Turkey and ancient Greece. They are um, worshiping these idols not because they're dumb and think that the statue is actually Artemis, but because it represents Artemis to them and it's meaningful to them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 you need to stop that because you don't need to come to this altar. You don't need to come to this temple. You don't need to come to this statue to bring your offerings or sacrifices or your prayers. You can do that anywhere, any place, because uh, Jesus is the one true God. Jesus is Lord and Savior, and Jesus is um, present everywhere. So 
This, of course, is going to put a major dent in the local economy for making silver and gold and wooden idols and marble temples and statues and things like that. So Demetrius assembles all these craftsmen and stirs them up um, and is, you know, and making the point that we're going to uh, lose our business if Paul keeps preaching this and we don't do anything about it. But also, not only will we lose our business, but the temple of Artemis will be discredited. You know, so one of the revolutionary things about the early church is that they said, based on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died and rose again, and then appeared to us for many days afterward in this spirit form, the fact that uh, Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, the fact that Peter and Paul and the other apostles are performing miracles of healing and transformation, all of these experiences are proving to us, confirming to us that um, you don't have to go worship God in the stone and marble temple on the hill in Jerusalem, that the kingdom of God has broken out of the temple, the veil has been torn, so to speak, and God is now out there and probably was always out there, but we didn't realize it, we didn't know it. We tried to put him in this box in the temple and now He's broken out of that box. So similarly, you don't have to go to the temple to worship Artemis. Um, you don't. You can worship not Artemis, but Jesus, who is probably is who you thought you were worshiping. You know, you thought you were worshiping Artemis all this time, but Artemis is just made up. Jesus is who you should be worshiping, um, and you don't need to go to the temple to do that. So this is obviously explicitly discrediting the temple of Artemis. Well, if you discredit the temple of Artemis, you don't need to go to the temple to worship her. You can worship God or Jesus anywhere. Then that is obviously going to also discredit Artemis herself. So Demetrius is making this appeal based on economics, but also based on uh, the religious values of the time. So when they heard this, this is Acts uh, chapter 19, verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, so Artemis is the patron goddess of Ephesus. And this guy just told them, you know, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this guy Paul is going to um, discredit Artemis if he hasn't already. They get really upset and the whole city is in an uproar. Um, the people seized Gaius and Aristocharis, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. You know, so in these ancient Romans, Greco-Roman cities, um, you would have a large amphitheater that was built to hold the whole city. So the whole city could come and enjoy a, an opera or a, a gladiatorial fight or something like that. You know, so the Colosseum in Rome is an is two amphitheaters put together to create a, the Colosseum. Um, but in every Roman city, there would be, you know, half of a Colosseum uh, as an amphitheater. And that's what we're talking about here. So the when they say they rushed as one man to the city, they mean it. Um, they built this to hold the whole city. So the whole city is in this theater uh, for this argument and this debate about the situation. Um, Paul wants to go and appear and make his case, but the other disciples won't let him. It's like, Paul, they're going to kill you. They're going to really get out of hand if you show up. Um, so even some of the officials of the province, you know, friends of Paul sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. And the assembly is, you know, really chaotic and confusion. And then finally, the city clerk is able to quiet the crowd and say, you know, listen, uh, <laughs> we know that Ephesus is you know, important to Artemis and that Artemis is important in Ephesus. Everyone, uh, Ephesus, everyone knows that. So just calm down. We haven't quite discredited Artemis yet. Um, and since that's the case, just please be quiet. Don't do anything rash. Um, you've brought these men here, even though they haven't done anything. They haven't robbed the temples. They haven't blasphemed Artemis or other goddesses or gods. Um, and so Demetrius, craftsman, if you have some issue, take it to the legal courts. So I think this is fascinating because um, he's able to calm the crowd enough to speak 
and then tell them you need to stop with the extrajudicial violence and instead pursue this through the legal courts, through the legal system. And then that's he's able to calm the crowd and he dismisses this, uh, the assembly. So to me, it's really fascinating how um, once again, there's this huge uproar in, because Paul's preaching the gospel. And we've, we saw this um, in his second missionary journey. The local officials step in and they say, this is not something that we need to riot about. <laughs> um, in his second missionary journey, it was, you all figure this out among yourselves. Don't bring this to the Romans to figure out. In this example, we see, you know, the local city government or city official saying, we have a way to deal with this. It doesn't involve violence and mob violence and rioting. We have the court system. So go through that if you want to deal with this, Demetrius and other craftsmen. So it's fascinating to me how the infrastructure and the systems of the Roman Empire really facilitated the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church because they were able to create enough space for the expression of this religion and create alternative channels for those who were opposed to it to oppose it without just absolutely, absolutely destroying and killing everyone. Um, and that created that space allowed the church to grow. And so, you know, we have this modern pluralistic democ democratic society. Um, we have freedom of religion and expression, and we also have a court system and we have ways to try to work out disputes and disagreements um, without using violence or resorting to violence and without controlling other people and dictating to them what they can and cannot believe or say or do as part of their religious expression. You know, and so to me, I really value separation of church and state. And I really value because I value freedom of religion. And I think what we've seen in the last several years, you know, we can objectively say that there are many Christians today who really would like to see our country be more explicitly Christian. So Christian nationalism is not just being proud to be a Christian or proud to be American, but Christian nationalism is wanting, uh, it's based on this belief that America is a Christian nation and the government should enforce its Christianity and its Christian values on everyone. That is taking it way too far because then we lose that freedom of religion, freedom of expression that allows for different people to have different religious beliefs. And if they have disagreements or disputes to work them out among themselves within their denomination and within those structures and organizations or to work them out in the court system, like with, you know, lawsuits, you know, about religious freedom or re religious expression or discrimination or, or things like that. Um, if we sacrifice separation of ch church and state, you know, if the government really were to enforce Christian nationalism and Christian values on everyone, well, which Christian values, which church, which denomination is it Catholicism? Is it Evangelicalism? Is it Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Pentecost? Um, is it the Black Church? Is it the Hispanic Church? So it really, it's just completely unworkable to try to say, well, we're going to establish a state national religion. We would not want that. It maybe sounds good in a theory and in the abstract, but if it were ever done, no one would be happy with it probably even including you know the one denomination that got its values or its uh, doctrine established as the official one they even probably wouldn't be happy in the long run because they would certainly be quite a target um, for other groups and other religions um, to say well why these doctrines why these practices and beliefs why not our others um, so we see even in the book of Acts, even in the early history of the church, how a pluralistic uh, democratic society could or should work because these people in Ephesus are coming forth 
essentially to have mob violence um, be the end result to eliminate this threat to their local economy of idol making and also to preserve the cult of Artemis and the uh, credit or credibility of Artemis. Um, and an official says, slow down. Artemis is fine. <laughs> and uh, Paul preaching this is not destroying Artemis. It's not, he's not forcing anyone to not worship Artemis. If people choose not to worship her, that's their right. And sue in court if you want to do something more about this. Um, so it's really striking to me, even in the early church history, a lot of the uh, values that we have today, you can see at play here and how it directly contributed to the growth of the and flourishing of the early church. And I would argue that today it should continue, those values should continue because that will also contribute to the growth and flourishing of our church. Okay, so toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey and toward the end of this section of the book of Acts, um, in Acts 20, 17-38, Paul gathered the Ephesian elders to lift them up and direct them in the way of the Lord. He reminded them of his teaching, repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he told them that he's headed to Jerusalem and he's unsure of the outcome, but he's reassuring them that he's not worried about getting arrested and killed or executed. He uh, believes the Holy Spirit has told him to go to Jerusalem and he wants to get there fast so that he can get there before Pentecost and before the festivals of that uh, associated with that. And he um, is giving this last speech to the church elders at Ephesus to encourage them and to strengthen them. Um, and so he says, among other things, you know, beware um, wolves who are going to try to destroy this flock of believers through division and through heresies and false teachings. Okay, so two big points there. First, you know, Paul says, I just want to fulfill my mission that God has given me. I want to fulfill my purpose that God has given me. You know, he says in Acts 20, verse 24, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So we see here where Paul has this profound, deep hope and trust in Jesus and in the resurrection, so much so that he is willing to die just to fulfill his task and his purpose that God has given him. And that's not the worst thing that could happen to him, right? That, to me, that is one of the most beautiful things about Christianity is that we have the hope of heaven and the resurrection and a renewed creation. And that allows us, I think, to not be afraid of whatever might befall us in this life. Not that you can't ever be afraid. That, you know, fear can be a signal that you need to worry about something or do something or protect yourself or others. But we have this hope that no matter what happens, it's not the worst thing that could ever happen to us. The worst thing that could ever happen to us would be separation from God. Um, we have this hope of being with God and eventually a bodily resurrection and a renewal of heaven and earth where they become one. That's the vision of the book of Revelation, that's the vision that scriptures point us to and that the early church points us to as our, <clears throat> excuse me, as our ultimate uh, deepest hope and trust. The second really important point here is that Paul says in you know, Acts 20 uh, verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember, that for three years I never stopped warning you, warning each of you night and day with tears. And so Paul seems to be saying that beware, after I leave, other people are going to rise up and they're going to preach false gospels. They're going to preach things that aren't true. They're going to distort the truth. And this is really interesting. You know, he doesn't say specifically here exactly what that might be. 
but I think he gives us some clues, some indications if we kind of read between the lines. So, um, you know, he then proceeds to say in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then he continues in verse 33 and 34, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So it could be, you know, if we're just looking at what Paul's saying in a speech and trying to infer between the lines what he's talking about here, because he's assuming, or the writer of this God, this scripture is assuming that our his, the audience has some clues, some insight into what's going on here. Um, you know, you might say something to someone and they know exactly what you mean because they know the backstory. You say it to me, I have no idea what you're saying because I don't know the backstory. So in the book of Acts, the author Luke seems to be assuming that his audience knows some of the backstory and can read between the lines a little bit here. So in our in my effort to try to read between the lines, it looks like Paul is saying, be on your guard for people who preach a gospel that doesn't focus on grace. You're saved by grace, not by works. Um, in Galatians, Paul writes that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. And so um, here... Who are these false teachers? Who are these wolves that Paul's warning about? Probably people who are going to rise up and preach, again, not against grace, but preach a gospel that um, is maybe grace and, right? You're saved by grace, and oh, by the way, you also need to do all these things to be right with God. Um, and this has been the big theme of Paul's ministry, isn't it? That he is arguing over and over again no, it's not about works. It's not about what you do. It's not about, um, you know, the offering the right sacrifices the right way to the right God at the right place. It's just about grace. It's just about deeply trusting in Jesus as the way, the way to live one's life and expressing that trust through loving God and loving others through actively seeking their good and trying to bring about their good. And that's all it is. Right? And it's not a set of rituals, it's not a set of requirements, it's not even necessarily a set of morality. Um, it's just whatever um, is loving other people and loving God, whatever is uh, expressing your deep trust in Jesus through trying to bring about good things for other people as opposed to uh, exploiting people or marginalizing people or seeking um, your own benefit at their expense. So. You can see, I think, even in modern times, and certainly many times throughout history, how people have preached the gospel in ways or taught the gospel in ways that really kind of put grace to the side and emphasize works or emphasize um, certain codes of behavior and ethics and morality. And I'm not anti-morality or anti-ethics, don't misunderstand me. But Paul's consistent message throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scriptures, is uh, grace. It's all about grace. It's not about rules. It's not about rituals. It's not about going to the temple on this day to offer this sacrifice. It's about grace. Um, and yet, you know, in our modern, you know, throughout history and certainly in our modern expressions of Christianity, we tend to layer on top of grace a bunch of other requirements either explicitly or implicitly. You know, we give people the message that, well, yeah, you're saved by grace, but also you need to live this certain way. And if you don't, well, you know, I have to question whether you're really spiritually transformed and whether you really were truly saved. And it's very easy, isn't it, for that line of thinking to become a works-based religion, a works-based, performance-based view of salvation. So Paul warned us about that way back in the early uh, years of the church in Ephesus. Um, and then it also seems like Paul is warning us against preachers or leaders who are wanting our money. <laughs> because why else bring this up? 
haven't you noticed that I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing? My own hands have provided for my needs and the needs of my companions, right? So really good example of this. Um, Sean uh, Foot, I believe that's how you say his name, um, is he came to prominence during the COVID pandemic. He would go lead um, worship concerts at various cities throughout the country um, that basically, you know, we're saying we don't think COVID is a problem because, you know, God's going to take care of us. So come join in a big crowd unmasked and let's sing praise and worship songs to as kind of a protest against this lockdown, a protest against masks. And, you know, and I'm not imposing my view on that. Like he would explicitly say, you know, we're, I'm doing this in part to protest masks and protest lockdowns as well as to glorify God. So he himself in his approach and his ministry would um, mash up or combine, you know, the political and the medical and the religious. So that's what he did. That's, he became uh, fairly well known in, at least in Christian circles and evangelical circles for doing this because it was very controversial as I'm sure you might imagine. So, he um, is doing this. Why is he doing this? Well, he starts asking for donations at these concerts. And um, I forget the exact figures, but on the Holy Post podcast, they talked about his ministry and they talked about how he, uh, Sean, you know, fucked ministries, actually brought in like millions of dollars. What did he use that for? Well, he's a ministry of one. Right, his ministry employs one person, and it's him. And he bought a couple houses in the last year or two, <laughs> right? And so, I'm sorry, but just based on all the evidence available, <laughs> based on you know, I haven't talked to him, I have, I don't know his heart, but based on the outward evidence and the outward fruit of what he's doing and how he's doing it, it sure does seem like he's the kind of person Paul's warm, warning about here. Be on guard for those pastors or preachers who are wanting financial support from you so that they can preach the word, right? I've been preaching the word and I supported myself. Now, having said all of that, I think there's a huge difference between, you know, we need to support as a congregation, as a faith community, we need to support a person or maybe a few people to devote the time necessary to minister to the flock and to um, create a Sunday worship service and to um, keep our ministries going throughout the week, whether that's going and visiting people or talking to people one-on-one or in small groups or leading small groups or um, doing things like Wednesday Night Live. Um, I mean, there are a lot of great things churches and congregations do to, um, as a community, worship God and disciple ourselves. And that takes time. That takes effort and energy. That doesn't just happen on its own. And even if you have a lot of volunteers, you often need at least a few people who are able to devote most of their time to that. Well, unless they're retired um, or, um, you know, it, maybe they're, they don't work because they are you know, blessed to have a spouse who, with an income that covers all of their expenses. And so they feel called to do this instead for free. I mean, if you have that, wonderful, great. But most of the time, in most contexts, we have to provide for someone financially so that they can do the ministries that uh, the congregation, that the community needs. So I'm not taking aim at pastors or preachers, but I am taking aim at someone like, you know, Sean uh, or some of the mega church pastors who have literal mansions and like multi-million dollar salaries um, and or collecting donations and then spending those donations on multiple houses, you know, and vacation homes and things like that. Um, because that definitely doesn't seem to be directly contributing to the community and its spiritual uh, formation or development. And it definitely uh, seems to be more of a prosperity gospel. You know, if you will give to me, um, you're giving to God and God will bless you in return. 
you know, Kenneth Copeland is another great example of this. You know, he's a uh, prosperity gospel preacher, and he was asking for donations to help him buy a private jet to replace his older private jet. Um, and, you know, we're not talking like a little Cessna here. We're talking like a several million dollar jet so he can fly around the country preaching the prosperity gospel even more. You know, so I think Paul seems even in the first cent you know, century A.D., in Ephesus to be warning us against these type of prosperity gospel preachers and this this preacher who is um, definitely succumbing to some temptations to solicit funds and not use them for God's kingdom, but rather use them for private gain or private luxuries and comfort. So it's pretty fascinating, isn't it, that uh, pretty much from the earliest days of the churches, you know, the church had barely formed and was barely organized and they were already encountering and struggling with some of the same issues that we continue to encounter and struggle with today. Um, Paul then, you know, concludes his speech to the elders of Ephesus and embarks for Jerusalem and people along the way of his journey try to warn him, there, when you get there, it's not going to be good. And the book of Acts doesn't, at least in you know, 18, chapters 18 through 21, it doesn't really tell us exactly what's going on and why Paul is going to trouble when he returns to Jerusalem. All we know at this point in the story is that um, Paul feels the Spirit has told him to go back to Jerusalem, and other people are warning him, don't do it, you're going to be uh, in trouble when you get there. And, uh, and yet Paul insists... No, uh, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So this is a really powerful example of someone um, following the Spirit, even at the cost of his or her own life or his or her own security. You know, and I... Most of us are not going to be uh, facing the kind of religious persecution that Paul faced, that Christians in other countries today face. Uh, most of us are probably not going to be called to the spirit by the Spirit to go somewhere where we're going to be killed or arrested or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, what are ways that in our lives, in our context, that the Spirit is calling us to die to ourselves so that we might live for Christ? so that we might um, finish our race or our course and the task and ministry that we've received in our uh, spheres of influence and our context. As always, thank you very much for listening, and please tell other people about the podcast. Um, it's the best way to spread the podcast and help it grow and help it reach more people for Christ. If you would, please uh, leave a review of the podcast because that also really helps with... Um, rankings and algorithms and helps people discover the podcast you know so when they log in to wherever they listen to podcasts they get recommendations and hopefully with this one having good reviews and fitting their interests based on their listening they'll discover this one so yeah please take a moment if you don't mind to leave a quick review really appreciate it thank you so much god bless <laughs>